Welcome to the story behind her success with Candy O'Terry, sponsored by Tech Help Boston. Every once in a while, you get the chance to meet a trailblazer, someone who opened doors that once were shut to women, someone who heard no every single day, but she persisted. In the spotlight, a woman who paved the way for other women, including me, in radio. Despite every roadblock, she went on to become a nationally known radio consultant, an author, a media historian, and a college professor. Her name is Donna Halper, and this is her story. Donna, welcome to the show. Oh, it's such a privilege. Thank you for having me on. Radio has been your life for a long, long time. So I guess what I'd like to start out by asking is, what was it about radio that drew you in, even as a child? Well, I was a very lonely kid. I I was always different from the kids of my generation. I grew up in the 1950s, and what inspired me was the DJs that I listened to on the radio. They just sounded like they were having fun. They sounded like they were making people happy. And I said to myself, my God, that sounds like the kind of job for me. Because I knew from the time I was four that I wanted to have a career. Paint me a picture of your life when you were growing up. You've shared that you were quiet and you were shy. Tell us a little bit about your family life. Well, I don't know if quiet would be the word. Shy, yes, absolutely. I still am. And your listeners, particularly the ones that know me, are rolling on the floor laughing right now because if you've seen me at an event, you're like, oh, my God, I wish I had her self-confidence. I've spoken and lectured in front of hundreds and thousands of people, not even nervous. But put me at a party. I'm the one that's in the corner not talking to anyone, okay? If I'm performing, I'm very comfortable. If I'm not performing, yeah, I'm incredibly shy and always have been. So my upbringing, well, let's see. I went from growing up the first eight years of my life in a place called Dorchester, which is a neighborhood of Boston. And when I was growing up there, I lived in an all-Jewish neighborhood. It was still mostly immigrants. And then when I was about eight, my parents moved to Roslindale. And Roslindale had no Jews. It was us. Hello. And that was really interesting because, unfortunately, anti-Semitism was still a part of the culture. Now, it was starting to recede for sure. I mean, come on, this is the next generation after the Holocaust. So no, I did not run into anything like that. But there was very subtle anti-Semitism. And I was, you know, I was mocked at school. I was, I I don't know if I should share this, but uh, there were some bullies at school that used to call me names based on my being Jewish. And that was never very pleasant. But the reality of the situation was that the things that made me feel better were always things that had to do with my future plans. I couldn't imagine staying in the neighborhood. I really got tremendous encouragement from listening to the radio. And I was like that from the time I was a kid. So I grew up in a home where my mother was a traditional housewife. And I don't say that unkindly. In the 50s, that was a very strong expectation. But back then, 
all that women were expected to be were either teachers, nurses, secretaries, bookkeepers. My mother was a bookkeeper, but when she married, it was understood that she wouldn't work. And I'm sure if you asked her, she would have said, oh, no, it wasn't even an option. Your father didn't want me to work, and there you are. That affected me. On the one hand, I was just enormously proud of the fact that she and my father had a very strong marriage. But it was a very strong traditional marriage where the wife deferred to the husband. And I just could not imagine living the kind of life where I married young and became a housewife. And that's what was expected. So I guess I was defined by what I knew I didn't want. That shaped me as much as knowing that I wanted a career because I was running into such resistance. And when you run into a lot of resistance, you get two options. You got one option where you just give in and say, okay, fine, I'll be what you want me to be. Or you've got the other kind, which is sort of where I went, which is, no, I just can't do this. So I just decided that somehow, some way, I was going to have a career. And I did. Well, you did make your way to college. You went to Northeastern University. And then you end up on the radio. Can you tell us about the first time you were ever on the air? And where was that? Oh, I sure can. So when I was growing up, and I heard guys on the radio. The only time I ever heard girls on the radio, women, was cooking shows, the occasional singer, the kind of gendered things that were very common back then. Wanting to be a DJ, I just figured the reason I didn't hear any women on the air was maybe they hadn't tried, maybe they hadn't applied. It would be years till I became a media historian and found out that, yes, they did try, but that's another story. Meanwhile, I just figured, oh, they didn't apply, so I will. And when I got to college, I went up to the college radio station, still remember it, and it was called WNEU back in those days, Northeastern University, WNEU. Today, it's WRBB, Radio Back Bay. And I go up to the program director at WNEU, kind of like, you know, Mr. DeMille, I'm ready for my close-up. You know, I've been listening to the DJs for years. I knew I could do it. And I said, you know, I'd like to be on the air. And the program director said, you can't be on the air. I said, why not? And the program director said, well, we don't have girls on the air. And I was like, well, yeah, I know. So, like, I'd like to be on the air. And he said, no, we don't have them on the air. They don't sound good. I said, well, how many of you had on the air? He said, none. They don't sound good. And that always kind of seemed like catch-22 to me. If you've never had them on the air, how do you know they don't sound good? So they let me segue records. They let me, like, play the records, but I couldn't talk. So for a while, I played the records. I still remember one of the first records I ever played was The Kinks, Tired of Waiting for You. And I, in my mind, I imagined what I would have said if I could have opened the microphone and said something. But I couldn't say anything. I could just play the identity, the station ID and stuff like that. So I left and I was really depressed and it really bothered me. And I embarked upon a four-year battle before Finally, 
in my senior year, society was kind of changing. It was 1968. And I finally found a program director. Uh, his name was Jim Gordon, if memory serves. And I made my case, as I had been doing for years. And he said, sure. And so it was that in October of 1968, I became the first woman in the history of Northeastern University to be on the radio. And somehow the Republic did not fall. Okay. I mean, nothing, nothing terrible happened. Life went on. I started off doing a folk music program called Full Circle, because back then folk music was still really big in Boston. And then gradually the station segued over more to album rock. And album rock was happening a lot at college level at that point because of the fact of the Vietnam War. And AM Top 40 was still very, you know, I lost my baby, bop, bop, shabop, doo-bop, whereas FM was starting to play protest music and a lot of songs that you wouldn't hear on AM. And so we decided to be another station that played some of that stuff in addition to Top 40. And I was also the music director, which was a tremendously fun job. And like I said, I was on the air there for oh my God, a year and a half, close to two years. And uh, that was how it all started. And now I was finally able to be on the air, living the dream. Tell me a little bit about your first commercial radio job, getting hired and being told, we're going to pay you money to be on the radio. That must have been quite a day for you. That must have been five years of banging my head against a wall. Unfortunately, when I got out of college, I found that, yeah, on some levels, things had changed, but on other levels, not so much. And an awful lot of places where I applied, they still came right out and said, we don't put women on the air. We just don't. That was so discouraging. So I ended up doing a lot of background stuff. Uh, there is a DJ who you may know, his name is Frank Kingston Smith, but he had become familiar with me over at WRKO, which back then was an AM Top 40. Now, I couldn't be on the air because, again, radio had not quite changed. So they allowed us to answer the phones. And they had a, a hit line, which was like the Top 40 requests. And I had a lot of fun doing that. And I also would give information to the DJs about the songs and about the artists, because even back then I was fascinated by it all. And I became friends with him. He was using the air name Bobby Mitchell back then. And when he got a job working for ABC Radio, he brought me along with him as a writer and a researcher. I was writing little vignettes for a series called Retro Rock, which was a history of rock and roll that ran on the ABC Contemporary Radio Network. And so it was a lot of fun researching and writing the the scripts and this and that, but it would be another couple of years before I would finally get a full-time radio job. And it was at a little AM station called WCAS in Cambridge. A guy named Rick Starr hired me, and I will always be grateful. And so I was teaching in the Boston public schools. Now, this is going to sound horrible, but I never wanted to be a teacher. Honest to God, I never did. My heart was always in radio. But on the other hand, the rent must be paid. So I 
took a job teaching in the Boston public schools and it paid the rent. I was teaching middle school and then I was teaching high school, but my heart was in radio. And so when I got this job at WCAS, it didn't pay enough so that I could leave teaching, but I was teaching in the morning. And then when my teaching shift ended, I would drive over to WCAS and do my afternoon shift. The kids got a kick out of it. They could hear their teacher on the radio. And it really was some of the happiest days of my life. Please support our sponsors. They make this show possible. These days, more and more people are working from home. When your computer breaks down, you lose business. This is Dave Elmasian, president of TechHelpBoston.com. Our tech experts will come to your home or office to fix your computer. Same day, next day, and weekends too. More than 30,000 families and businesses have trusted us since 2000. You can trust Tech Help Boston to keep your computer and systems running right. Call 781-484-1265 or visit TechHelpBoston.com. That's TechHelpBoston.com. It takes teamwork to put a weekly series like this together. I am so grateful to Jordan Rich and Ken Carberry for giving the story behind her success a home at Chart Productions. And to Dan Tebow, our editor from Fast Twitch Media. J.C. Valeris at Platinum Circle Media, who handles our social media marketing and so much more. Thank you all for making me look so good. Let's get back to our conversation with Donna Halper, a trailblazer for women in radio. Along the way, and I guess it was a couple of years later, you end up working for a radio station in Cleveland, Ohio. Is that correct? That is indeed. There's a story that goes along with that. You got an advance album from a group called Rush, a rock trio, three guys from Canada. You listen to that song or the album itself and you become a believer. Tell us what happened next. It was sort of a homegrown record. And I'm at WMMS in Cleveland, and I'm the music director and a Canadian record promoter named Bob Roper, and I am still in touch with him. He sent me this homegrown record by a rock trio called Rush. I've never heard of them. Nobody else has either. They're sort of big in the club scene in Toronto, but as far as in the States, no, not at all. But when I listened, and he sent me a note saying, you know, Our label isn't going to sign these guys. We just don't think they're ready. But I hear something. Let me know if you hear something. And I dropped the needle down on Working Man. And the moment I heard the lyrics, I knew immediately that this was a Cleveland record because it was about getting up early, working all day, not having any time for a living. Back then, Cleveland was a factory town, okay? And I just knew that song would resonate with the audience. And sure enough, it did. Now, if you asked me, did I know back then that I'd end up being friends with the band for like 45 years? No, I was a music director. Music directors break new artists on album rock radio stations. That's what we do. I never had an expectation that I'd meet the band, be friends with the band, be, you know, have a, have a couple of albums dedicated to, never expected that at all. All I expected was that I would play this song, I would give it to the DJs, I would tell them like, hey, this is going to be a great song for us. And after that, I mean, you've been in radio, you know, if you've been in radio, you can play a song that you love 
and the audience doesn't. It's jokingly called a turntable hit back then because we played vinyl records on turntables and a lot of DJs would love a song and they were the only ones who did. But in this case, I loved a song and the audience went nuts over it. At which point that led to my calling their managers, getting import copies of the record sent to us, those sold out, pretty soon record labels in the States are wanting to sign them. And they came to the States and I got to meet them. And it just took off from there. And it was one of the most pleasant surprises of my life. Well, in fact, they got signed by Mercury Records and they stayed with that label throughout their entire career. Donna, you need to have a great ear to hear a hit before it's a hit. What are the ingredients to that? When you're music directing, you have to put yourself in the position of the audience and think to yourself, what will resonate with them? What has good lyrics? What is danceable? There was an old joke a long time ago, and I don't know who said it, but many people take credit for saying it, that a big hit record has to either make you want to dance or make you want to cry. And to that degree, that's actually true. It either has to have a certain danceability to it or a certain emotion that resonates with the listeners. Because the listeners, even to this day, whether they're listening online, whether they're listening on a radio, whether they're listening on a podcast, they still are looking for something where when they hear it, they go, yeah, that, okay? So that's what I was looking for. I was always looking for songs where when the listeners heard it, they'd go, yeah, you know, they're singing my life. So I would be looking for songs that were listenable, memorable, emotional, or danceable. You love rock and roll. Why do you love it so much? Probably I love rock and roll because it's the music that I grew up with. And I think everybody has a certain love for what shaped them. Rock and roll, when I was growing up, was the music of rebellion. I mean, don't forget, the culture was changing. We're segueing away from big band music, which is what my parents grew up with, and into a kind of music that lets you say the things that in the very rigid 1950s you kind of weren't allowed to say, you know, like, I don't want to go to school, I don't like my teachers, I want to be different, I want to get out there and do X, Y, and Z. Top 40 lets you say that. And yeah, a lot of Top 40 was very mundane and bubblegummy. But some of it wasn't. Some of it had kind of like a hidden subtext. And we teenagers, we knew it. We could read it. We understood it. And then even when we kind of move into album rock, same deal. It's speaking to us. It's saying the things that the general society is, oh, no, don't say that. You know, like, you're not supposed to protest the war. You're not supposed to complain about authority or speak out about racism or sexism or whatever else. Just like fit in. And rock and roll for me was the music of rebellion. And it was the music of going your own way, being your own person. Now, agreed, not every song was like that. And there were a lot of songs that just, honest to God, they just had a good beat and they were easy to dance to and they made me feel better. But I could always find songs where the lyrics just spoke to me. It's catharsis. 
it makes you feel better. And sometimes the lyrics are just so incredible, not because they're going to make you forget Shakespeare, but because they're singing your life. I mean, remember the song Killing Me Softly? Sure. There's a line in it where it's like strumming my pain with his fingers, singing my life with his words, killing me softly with his song. Yeah, it's that. It's like there are some songs you never forget what city you were in, who you were with. I mean, it just brings back so many memories. And even today, you're making new memories. So yeah, music for me and rock and roll in particular is the music that shaped me. There is also an art to being on the air. You have to reach through that microphone, touch somebody on the shoulder, welcome them in. What, in your opinion, makes for a great broadcaster? What are the ingredients? Well, when I was growing up, the best rock and roll DJs were the ones that made me feel understood. They made me feel heard. Now, I know what you're thinking. Like, you know, they made you feel heard. You're listening to them. Yeah, except they understood who their audience was, okay? My cultural hero was Arnie Ginsberg. I loved Arnie Ginsberg. Arnie just passed recently. I had not had the opportunity to meet him when I was growing up. But even though he was older, he understood his teenage audience. He understood their traumas. He understood the stuff they were going through. He understood teenage heartbreak. And even though he never met most of us, he knew how to relate to the audience. And that really shaped me. That really influenced me. Because to me, the best announcers are the ones who understand how to relate to the audience they have. They know something about the lives of the people in their audience, because it's different from city to city. And I may not know their politics. I may not know their religion. I may not know whether they're gay or straight, because back in those days, the DJs did not talk much about their personal lives. But what I knew was when I listened they understood what all of us were going through and they could play a song that made us feel better. So to me, even unto this very day, the best announcers are the ones who are the most relatable. The best ones made me feel like they were my best friend. Throughout the course of your career, you stood your ground. You went through those obstacles and those hurdles. What was it that you did that kept you going, that made you persevere? Was it just that you were stubborn? Tell me a little bit about what your state of mind was when people said no to you. I've never talked about this on a show before. It's not particularly gory. It's just very emotional. When I was on the air in New York, I went up for a job interview. And the guy that did the interview sexually harassed me. He did more than sexually harass me. I'll let your listeners fill in the blanks. It was one of the most horrible experiences of my life. And what made it even more horrible was the men around me told me not to say anything because they said no one would believe me. They said that I'd be considered a complainer, a whiner. 
And besides, this was a great man. This was a famous man. This was an executive. And, you know, and then they asked the predictable, what were you wearing? And, you know, I just, I just, I sunk into a period of depression. But then I got myself back up again. To answer your question, what got me motivated, I didn't want to give him the satisfaction. I didn't want to have him think that he got the best of me because he didn't. I'm still here. No matter what people have said to me, no matter how often people have put roadblocks in front of me, no matter how many times people have said, you can't, yes, I got depressed. I'm the first one to admit it. I got discouraged. I'm the first one to admit it. But I didn't let it stop me. But if I were to give advice, I would say, feel whatever it is you're feeling. Feel depressed, feel discouraged, feel whatever, but don't let it stop you. If you're going through something like what I went through, get some help. And I don't mean get some help like there's something wrong with you. I mean, set up some support systems so you got someone to talk to. Because if all you're confronting is no, you can't, no, you won't, and people trying to do stuff that you don't think is right, you're going to start feeling overwhelmed and you're going to give up. From the time I was a kid, like when people would say to me, no, you can't, it would just make me be like, oh, yeah, well, I'll show you. Define for yourself what you feel you ought to be. Put ethics first and then get out there and do the right thing. One of the things that gave me a lot of strength was being Jewish. Whatever you are, if you're Christian, if you're a Muslim, if you're an atheist, if you're a whatever, find an ethical system that speaks to you and follow it. Don't compromise your ethics. So when I was going through what I went through with the sexual assault and when I went through the depression and everything else, what was my North Star was I'm going to get back up, I'm going to do the right thing, and sooner or later I'm going to show this guy that he didn't get the best of me. And he didn't get the best of me because I went on to have a good career. If you know that you are doing the right thing, Sooner or later, it's going to come around for you. I believe that strongly, and I've always believed that. Words of wisdom from a trailblazer in radio, Donna Halper. When men told her, we don't put girls on the radio, they just don't sound good. She refused to accept it, and she would go on to become one of the most respected women in broadcasting. But wait, there's so much more, because she's not done yet. So don't miss part two of her incredible life story, Donna Halper, on the story behind her success. Thanks for listening to the story behind her success with Candy O'Terry. This is a series with one goal in mind, to shine the spotlight on women doing great things with their lives. We hope these weekly stories will motivate and inspire you. If you'd like to suggest someone for Candy to interview, she'd love to hear about it. Connect with her anytime on Facebook, Twitter, and her website, CandyOterry.com. That's C-A-N-D-Y-O-T-E-R-R-Y.com. You'll find all of these links in the show notes. What's your story? <laughs>